I love my church. I love my church. I love my church. I love my church. I love my church because we're taught the truth and we love people. I love my church because everyone is designed to serve, even in junior high ministry. I love my church because this is my home. I love my church because I've learned about God's grace towards me and how to extend it to others. I love my church because we are better together. I love my church because we care enough about people to tell them the truth, whether or not it's popular. I love my church because marriage mentoring saved our marriage. I love my church because my whole family is here. I love my church. <laughs> I love my church because I'm able to go to summer and winter camp. I love my church because it offers an opportunity for my children and myself to grow our relationship with God deeper. I love my church because of the teachers that teach me. I love my church. I love my church. I love my church. I love my church because of the fun activities. I love my church because generous people transform the world. I love my church because it feels like my family. I love my church. I love my church. We love our church. <laughs> yeah, don't we love our church? We got a good church. We got a good church. Hey, I want to welcome all of you. If you are brand new to Purpose Church, you're just checking it out, you picked a great Sunday to be here. And I'm really, really excited you're here. In fact, I want to also acknowledge we've got some incredible junior high and high school students on the front row. Can we show them some love? We love that you students are a part of the church now. You're a part of the church now, and that's why I wanted to bring you in uh, for this series. So it's good to see you. Uh, Pastor Glenn is out preaching at Mercy Road Church, uh, so unfortunately you have to listen to me this morning. Uh, but come back again, because he's better and he's more awesome. So uh, uh, be here next week. He's, he's back, uh, but he's gone. Also want to welcome those of you that are joining us online uh, at our Callis Bell campus, at our Arco campus. Uh, my parents actually just went to the Callis Bell campus, and they said it was pretty cool. They said the people there were absolutely awesome. They felt totally at home. So Callis Bell, you guys rock. So uh, thanks again for being here. We are really, really excited you're here. Hey, this morning, this morning I'm wearing my I Love My Church shirt. And guess what? We have heard your cries. We have ordered enough of these to be purchased. So back in the lobby with uh, Laura out in the Connect Center, she would love to sell you one of these. They're 10 bucks. You can represent. People are going to ask you, why do you love your church? And you get to tell them why. So uh, get, get one of these. We'd love to see you in them. This morning, I want to begin with a question. And whether uh, you are a student, whether you are in college, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have kids, whether you're retired, whatever age or stage you're in, this question applies to you. And the question is this, what is determining your identity? What's giving you identity? Identity is this, identity is your worth and your value. What is it that you depend on? What is it that you look to? What is it that is giving you worth and value? What is it that is giving you your identity? And I wanna suggest this morning that, that we will primarily understand our identity, our worth, our value in one of three places. The first would be what you think about you. So you go, I'm, I'm tall, I'm cool, or I'm wealthy, so I'm doing all right. Or I've had these great experiences, or maybe some of you have had a really tough life, and you go, I don't really feel worth anything because of what these things that I've gone through. And so you look at yourself, you look inward, and you go, I will determine how valuable and worth I am. That my identity comes from me, or or maybe your identity comes from them. 
And so you're constantly on the search in relationships. Maybe you go from relationship to relationship to relationship. You find yourself swiping left all the time, trying to figure out, trying to figure out who you really are. And so you're in relationship after relationship after relationship because your identity and worth and value is going to come from them or from your boss or from your supervisor, or your kids, or whoever it may be, and so you find your identity from them. Or lastly, the the pitch I'm going to try to make today is that we have the opportunity to find our identity, our worth, and our value in God. And we're going to start at the very beginning and discover how from, from the very beginning, we've had a history of our identity, that your identity has had a history, that, that there was a beginning an identity that you were originally given. And then there was an identity that we inherited, a broken identity. And then lastly, we're going to wrap up with what is our brand new identity that's available to all of us? So I want to ask the question again. How do you identify yourself? What gives you worth and value? And some of you are going, well, I've been in church for a while and I've kind of already dealt with this question. Well, the reason we're talking about it today is because you and I are a few unintentional steps away from forgetting who we really are. That every single person is a few unintentional thoughts, a few unintentional actions away from actually forgetting who we are. And so even if you've been following Jesus for a really, really long time, you and I have the potential of falling into this trap. Because here's what I know to be dangerous. Is that when something good in your life becomes your identity, you stop enjoying it and you become enslaved to it. That when something good that that God has given you, whatever he's given you, whatever skills, talents, relationships, environments, salary, opportunities, whatever it may be, that whatever good things God has given you, as soon as that good thing becomes your identity, you stop enjoying that good thing that God has given you and you actually become a slave to it. My wife, Sarah, loves when I bring this up to her. Um, this is how I'd be romantic. I go, hey, babe, you know, Jesus told us that our relationship is not going to last forever. <laughs> Husbands, don't say that, right? Like, just don't say that. It's a bad starting point. But I talk, we, we kind of talk, we go, Jesus talked about this reality that even our marriage, even my marriage, which is one of the primary ways I identify myself. Whenever I'm filling out forms, I'm oftentimes, as I'm filling those out, I'm checking married, married, married. It's one of the ways I understand and identify myself. Even Jesus said that identity is not forever. And so here's the danger is that if we take the good things in our lives and if we make them concrete and say, this is who I am, what happens when they change? What happens when they go away? What happens when we lose out? What happens when we were overlooked? We spiral because we're a slave to it. And so my question is, how do you identify yourself? Where is your identity for me, this became crystal clear a few Thursdays ago. How many of you know Adrian Pichai? Anybody know Adrian Pichai? Adrian Pichai is our faithful junior high pastor. We love Adrian. Adrian has like a billion gifts. One of his gifts that maybe some of you don't know about is he likes to cut hair, okay? So Adrian loves cutting hair. Now, I came up to him one day and I said, Adrian, here's the deal. I have had the same haircut for like 10 years, okay? And I'm well aware that I'm not as hip and cool as I'd want to be. Could you make me cool? And he looks at me and he goes, Eric, that's going to be a tough task. Um, 
but I, I'm down for the opportunity. I think we can do it. So he says, all right, Eric, we're going to give you hair and it's, we're going to give you a cut and it's going to look hipster and it's going to look cool and it's going to look great. So we sit down together and, and he starts kind of buzzing the sides and starts styling it. I was actually over at the Peach Eyes house. I don't know where the Peach Eyes are, but that's Adrian's family. I was over at their house for like two hours and the whole family was like designing my hair. It was perfect. I would like that every day. So they're like designing my hair and I feel so great about my haircut. I'm feeling so awesome about it. On this one specific Thursday, when Adrian had cut my hair, I remember leaving that room and going, I'm cool now, right? Like, like I'm good. And I don't know, maybe some of you, you got that raise or, or you're sitting next to your best friend in school or uh, maybe that boy finally said yes to you, that girl finally, whatever it may be that you go, man, I'm worth something. I'm valuable. And that's how I felt after I got this haircut. And so I'm walking around proud and excited and just feeling totally great about myself. And that Thursday night, I was meeting Sarah, my wife, for dinner. And before I, met, before I got there, I actually arrived early. And there's a coffee shop by our dinner. And so I'm like, dude, but this coffee shop, man, this coffee shop's got a reputation for being the place where cool kids go, okay? This is the place where you got to be looking slick. You got to be looking good. You got to be looking slick to go into this. So I'm thinking, this is my opportunity, right? This is my moment. This is my day. I'm ready for this. And so I walk up into like the coffee shop and I kind of feel really good and I walk up into this coffee shop and, and I'm cruising through and man, everybody's got just the tightest jeans and the coolest flannels and the gnarliest hair. And it's just a place to be, but I'm fitting in and I'm feeling really great. So, so I walk up to the front and I, I say hi to the guy and he goes like this. He's like, what's up, dude? And he's got his hair and I'm like, one day I'll be there, but I'm close. Right. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, He's like, hey, what, would you, what, what do you want to drink? And I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, what's the most manly drink? Like Americano hipster. What is that? What can I say that's going to impress? You know, and nothing's coming to mind because I have the diet and the appetite of a five-year-old. And so I'm like, nothing's coming to mind. So I tell him, I say, I'll take a hot chocolate. <laughs> but, I'm like, but I'm like, you know, do that cool swirl thing. Do the, like the acorn. You know what I mean? Do that thing. He's like, all right. And then I ask him, I go, hey, do you guys have Wi-Fi here? And he's like, Psh yeah, we got Wi-Fi, you know? I'm like, all right, cool, they got Wi-Fi. And then I say, you know, can I, I'd like that banana nut. And so he gives me that. And, uh, and then he takes my card and he swipes it. And then he looks up at me and he says this, he goes, I like your hair. Are you kidding me? Like validation, you know? Like I could die at this moment and die a happy man because he has just looked at me and he's like, I like your hair, and I, me, I can't control myself, and this happens to me far too often. I'm, I, I say to him, I'm like, dude, thank you so much for saying that. I just got a haircut. My junior high pastor, I'm a pastor, my junior high pastor, he cuts hair, and he's really cool, and I'm not, and he made me cool, and I really appreciate this, and I'm going on and on, and then he does this, no joke, no lie. He looks at me, and he goes, oh, sorry, uh, sir, I'm, I'm so sorry. That's our Wi-Fi password. But here's the thing, like I walked in, I walked in like dabbing up, feeling good. And I walked out defeated dab, you know, like just like not doing okay with myself, feeling horrible about myself. And literally in the matter of like a conversation, I went from feeling worth something. I went from feeling valuable. I went from feeling like I fit in to wishing that I could curl up and die at that moment. And that's the danger. That's the danger of finding your identity and your worth and your value in experiences. 
even in relationships and how you look and how much money you make is because it could be gone in a second. And you see, God knows this about us. And so he provided a different identity for us, one that's far deeper than how we look or how we feel or how much money we make, but goes all the way to the very beginning. Find me in Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one, the first big identity that we're gonna talk about is that our original identity was image bearers that our original identity was image bearers. Find me in Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The book of Genesis, this first chapter is 31 verses. It's a beautiful poem telling the story of God creating the world. And it begins saying that there is a God who preexisted all things. This God was not created. This God always was. And before anything came into existence, this God had an idea. This God had a creative idea to do something so magnificent, so incredible. And this God decided to create, and this God decided to create in a way that is such a miracle. And later we're going to see he's going to create humans, and, and not so that he can exploit them and use them and abuse them as other ancient Near Eastern myths of creation were told. No, 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 this God, this God created people for a far different purpose. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and he does this over and over and over again through creation. As he creates them, he goes, oh, that's tight. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's incredible. He he gets amazed at his creation. He's going, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, there was morning the first day. And so God begins to create and everything he creates is good. But he didn't just create it good. He created it perfect and whole. In fact, he did so in such a statistical, miraculous way. Because I think he wanted you and I to know that as we're going to wrestle today about where our identity really sits, we've got to understand that the God who is going to tell us who we really are is powerful enough to back it up. That this God who is going to tell you and I who we really are can be trusted because he so perfectly created the whole world. Scientists are just catching up to what Genesis 1 has always been talking about, and they've discovered something called the 122 constants. And the 122 constants are these 122 different scientific realities and truths that prove that life here on planet Earth is a statistical miracle. And so as we dive into who we are in Christ, I want to understand who God is, this, this magnificent, this big, this huge God. I'm not going to read a whole of them, but I'm going to read four of these 122 constants that prove that the way God made the world was so perfect, was so accurate, was so precise, so that we would know him. The first one is this. Scientists have discovered that our atmosphere is comprised of 21% oxygen. So as you and I live and breathe and do our thing, that the earth is comprised of 21% oxygen. Here's what scientists have discovered, is that if the percentage of oxygen in our atmosphere was altered 1%, that if it was 22% or if it was 20%, that immediately fires would erupt everywhere and none of us would be here. 
So I want us to do something for a second. I want you to take a deep breath in with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Scripture from Genesis to Revelation over and over and over again. Acts 17, 24 is a good place. It says that God gives life and breath to all things. But he didn't do so haphazardly. He didn't do so randomly. He did so precisely so that we would know who he is, so that we would know how brilliant and big and powerful he is. Second one that I want to point out is gravity. What's gravity, right? Gravity is that thing that, you, that caused you to sit down, right? Nobody in the Olympics is like, all right, and now we're having a seating challenge, and everyone's going, yeah! Nobody's doing that, right? Nobody's applauding you for sitting down. That's not significant or impressive at all because gravity just pushes you down. Well, here's what scientists have discovered about gravity. If gravity was altered by point zero 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 one percent. If gravity was altered by that much, you know what scientists have discovered? There would no longer be a sun, and therefore you and I would cease to exist. So that gravitational pull that we feel is evidence of God. You see, God is not afraid of science. Science, science gives you and I a front row seat to the glory of God. It gives us a picture of how magnificent, how mind-blowing, how incredible, how huge God is in the way he created. You see, Genesis 1, I hope that after this, you never read this chapter the same. Because there's incredible depth to this beautiful poem. Two more. Earth. Did you know that earth tilts at, let's see, students, you know how, how what, what, what degree does earth tilt at? 23 point, okay, a little specific there, Gunny. Uh, 23.5, I just have in my notes 23. So uh, 23.5 says Gunny. So earth, earth tilts at 23.5. So when God created earth, you know what he did? He gave it like swagger. You know what I mean? Like he's like, boom, just like tilt it, right? So he puts earth at this tilt. Here's what scientists have discovered. That if it was altered one degree in either direction, that surface temperatures on planet earth be far too extreme, it would be far too cold, it would be far too hot for any of us to live here. So when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, And he steps back and he goes, that's good. And it's going to take him thousands of years to figure out how good that really was. <laughs> right? Last one would be this. One of the reasons that we believe in a creator, not just biblically, but scientifically, is because the universe is expanding. So if the universe is expanding, it had some kind of starting point. But what scientists have discovered about this expansion of the universe is that if, if the universe had expanded at one one millionth the rate slower, or it had expanded one one millionth the rate faster, that the universe would have collapsed on itself long before any of us ever had an opportunity to be here. So Genesis 1 is this story of God so perfectly crafting and weaving together this tapestry, this beautiful planet, this universe, so that we would know, man, he didn't just do so randomly. He did so perfectly so that we could understand him. But then God does something insane. 
He does something absolutely crazy. Finally, in verse 26, then God said, let us make humans, let us make human beings in our image. This was crazy because every other story back in this day was that gods, if they had created humans, that their purpose of creating humans was to exploit them and to use them for their own advantage. But in this story, in this story, God so beautifully creates and then says, we are going to make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. Did you catch what happened there? God created humanity with an identity, image bearers, and then gave us a task to do, rule over the land, be leaders, be good stewards as a response to who we are. You see, God longs for you and I to live lives in response to who we actually are. Not in a search for who we are, but in response to who we are. That's the kind of life God wants us to live. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, the very first words out of the mouth of God. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. What's the first biblical command? Parents, you can explain to your kids later. Um, be fruitful and increase in number. How do you do that? Fill in the blank. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You see, from the very beginning, God's desire was that every part of our lives would reflect him. God's desire, God's desire is that all of me was created to reflect all of him. And so God from the beginning said, my desire is that their sexuality would actually be a reflection of me. That, that their sexuality would not be a journey to discover who they are, but their sexuality would be a response, would be a reflection as image bearers who bear his likeness, that everything about us would reflect him. That our relationships, that's horrible, that our relationships would reflect him. That our careers would reflect him. Get this one. That the way we treat our enemies, the way we treat our enemies would actually reflect him. That literally God's desire was that everything, everything about our lives would reflect him. You see, this was our original identity, that we were image bearers that the way in which we live would just be one big worship concert to God. But then phase two of our identity breaks apart. Find me in chapter three, chapter three of Genesis, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Backstory, here's what's going on. God creates this garden for Adam and Eve to live in. And he says, be fruitful, multiply, subdue it, rule, lead. But then he puts one tree in the garden. He puts one tree in the garden that he tells them, if you eat of this tree, you're going to die. He's not sugarcoating. He says, if you eat of this tree, you will die. 
And some of you maybe have asked the question, why would God do that? Why would God put a tree in the garden that they could eat from that would sever everything? And here's why. Because from the very beginning, God's desire was to have an authentic relationship with humanity, not a robotic relationship with people. So God's desire from the very beginning was that you and I would choose the God who has always chosen us. And you can't help but read Genesis to Revelation and you'll discover a God who page after page after page after page chooses people over and over and over again, but always gives us the freedom, always gives us the ability to either choose him back or to not choose him. And so why did God put that tree in the garden? Because God doesn't want to force you to love him. Because God wants you to have the option of not loving him. If if your love with him is going to be authentic, the tree's got to be there. And so there is this tree. And he says, man, I want you to reflect me perfectly in everything that you do. But if you don't want this, there is a way out. I'm not going to force you to be here. There is a way out. And so Satan, Satan uses that. The woman said to the serpent, verse two, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Satan says this, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows, this is so key, maybe you need to underline this, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Did you see what Satan did there? Satan promised them something they already had. See, they already had God's likeness. They didn't need to go searching for their likeness. You see, what Satan does here is he toys with our identity, and this is one of his favorite things to continue to do with us. And in fact, there are industries that are making billions and billions of dollars trying to sell you an identity and a worth and a value that you already have. And so Satan, from the very beginning, does this. He says, you want to be like God? You must go over here. You must do this. Their response in that moment should have been, oh, Satan, sorry. I already have his likeness. I don't need to go searching for it. But the story goes the way that our story goes. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Awkward. (laughs) Nobody else think that's awkward? Okay, I would think that's pretty awkward. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was talking, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. What happened in this moment was devastating. You see, we think of sin as just that thing that I did last night or that, that part of my past or that, that thing that I'm dealing with or that thing that happened last weekend and I'm kind of done with it. Biblically, sin is much more powerful than that. You see, sin, sin destroys us. That sin, sin literally ruins everything. And so in this moment, when they choose to dethrone God and put themselves in his place, when they choose to eat of the tree as we have all eaten from the tree, what happened in that moment is their identity, their broken identity become, became dead in sin. And so what happened is this. 
And you see, since then, we've been living in this environment. We've been living in this world where, where we think our sexuality is our means to some kind of identity. And the reason we think that is because we are living and we are seen through a fractured lens. And we think that that next boyfriend, that next girlfriend, that next career, that next season, that's going to finally give me what I want. Because we're seeing through a broken lens. We look at our enemies. Someone who on Facebook thinks very differently than we do politically. And we go, I'm going to hate on them. I've got a great argument for them. And what's worse is we begin to settle at this moment for lesser identities. We think, some of us in this room, we think that our primary identity is whether we will be voting for Trump or Hillary or who knows. We think our primary identity is our paycheck. It's how gorgeous our husband or wife is. How our kids are turning out. How many people like our comments how many boys we've been with, how many girls we've been with. Because we're broken. Because we've inherited an identity that is so fractured, that is so broken. And it's causing us to always run and hide. And here's the thing you need to know about a broken identity. A broken identity will always cause you to run and hide. It will always cause you to run to another. It will always cause you to hide from God. Because you think he hates you. Because you think he doesn't want anything to do with you. And so you're convinced that if I go to that person, that place, that job, whatever it may be, there I'll finally know who I really am. And then you get there. And you falsely feel a sense of worth and value. And then it comes crumbling down or something happens or things change. And we're on this roller coaster because this is our identity. Because we were created to reflect him, but we have settled we have settled for thinking that these things are our true identity when they never, ever were. So then a few thousand years later, this guy shows up on planet Earth named Jesus of Nazareth. And he's this poor, seemingly insignificant guy who, it just seemed like he was kind of born in the wrong place at the wrong time. Romans were empowered at this point. That's early in his life, there were people who actually wanted to kill him. And then he started teaching and started talking about how he was the Messiah. People said, you're the what? People didn't understand that, that he was actually coming to save us from this. But here's the problem. People in the first century, the Jews... Some of them, when they were hoping and thinking about what a Messiah would look like, what their Savior would look like, they thought it was going to be a guy who was going to come and was going to overthrow Rome, and finally Israel would be empowered again. That Israel would be the top dogs, but then Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, actually I have a far greater, deeper work to do here than just change a government structure. I've actually got to change hearts. I've actually got to win people back. I've actually got to heal, restore, and forgive that which is broken, that which is severed, that which cannot do anything on their own to fix themselves. I've got to intervene. And so what happens on the cross in the first century is that Jesus of Nazareth, who said he's the way, the truth, and the life, who claimed to be God, 
proves it by, by getting up on a cross and all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all of our dead in sin identity is poured out on him. And he experiences the ramifications of this. The ramifications of this is separation cosmologically, separation biologically, separation relationally, separation spiritually. See, this is what dead in sin actually means is that every part of us gets separated from all that God is and all that God made. And Jesus shows up and he says, I can fix that. That I can make you right with God again. And so by removing our sin and putting it on himself, he actually gives us himself. He gives us brand new life. He gives us freedom and he gives us forgiveness. And he gives us a new identity. And not one that we have to earn, but one that we choose to receive. And it doesn't matter if you are a seventh grade student or a 10th grader or if you're in college or you just started at Western or APU or wherever you're from, or you're married or you're divorced or you're single or you're retired, it doesn't matter what age or stage that you are in. This God has the ability to take you and me dead in sin with a broken identity and to make us new, alive in Christ. Paul Paul was writing to this church in Corinth. Corinth is in modern day Greece towards the northern side. And, and Corinth was a really popular city. There were seaports on the east and west side. And so boats were constantly coming in and there were trades going on. And, and you know what else there was? There was a lot of religions. There was a lot of temples. In fact, there was a temple in the northern part, a temple to Aphrodite that, that it, was, it was rumored to have a thousand prostitutes. And they believed that was the way to true fulfillment. That was our identity. That was our worth and our value. But there was also a multitude of other temples, worship centers, religions. And this church in Corinth, they were on the brink of settling for a religion. They were on the brink of thinking that their identity will come from trying out every single religion, trying everything under the sun. And they almost missed it. They almost missed that their faith, that true life, does not come from a religion or a philosophy or a list of do's and don'ts. It comes from one person who claimed to be the God of the universe, proved it by dying on a cross and rising from the dead and then came to give us a brand new free identity. And so Paul, as he's writing this letter in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, he's trying to get them to understand that something has changed, that something has happened, that because of what Jesus did on the cross, their lives are different. In fact, their identity is different. And so he says it this way, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. You see, what Jesus has done in your life is brand new. He's taken our former broken identity, our dead in sin identity, and he's cleaned it and he's restored it and he's renewed it and he's done something brand new in us. And this is not an identity that you can ever, ever earn. This is an identity that you can only receive. And this new identity in Christ, meaning that you are in Christ, it supersedes all other identities. So every other, come on, that's what I'm talking about. 
So every other way that you understand yourself is so far below the fact that you are alive in Christ. Come on. We'll take it. Each one of those. And here's what's huge. Here's what's huge. It doesn't matter what you've gone through. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter your circumstance. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter how hard or good your life has been. Because we have a new identity in Christ, and we're going to talk specifically about what that is in just a minute, but three truths remain. And the three truths are this. God created you. Every single one of you, God created you. God loves you. And God will use your life for his glory. I had a former student at, a, at a, the last church I was at call me right literally a half an hour before I was going to go speak at a camp. And he called me and he said, Eric, he said, I have something to tell you. He said, I think I might be autistic. And he goes, if, if you thought that about yourself, would you want to know? Man, it was just such a vulnerable conversation. And, and we began to talk through that. But this is what I told this young man. I said, after we had talked through it, this is what I said to him. I said, you know what you need to know is that no matter what you find out next week, whether you find out you're on the spectrum or you find something else out, three truths remain. God created you. Friends in this room, whatever you're going through right now, it is not a surprise to God. That whatever you're internally struggling with, the battle that you are having, the issue you're going through, the marriage that feels like it's falling apart at the seams, the thing that happened last weekend, that man, you're just, this weekend, you're terrified this week is going to come out and everybody's going to find out about it. That God knows about that already. And that he created you and he still chooses to love you. And he has the ability to take this former broken identity. And maybe you were just recently broken again. He has the power and the ability to take what is broken and to make it new. And to take what is destroyed and to restore. You see, that's what God can do. Some of you received one of these when you walked in the room. If you did, I'd love to invite you to get this out real quick. And if you didn't get one of these, you can just write it down in your notes. But in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes for six chapters. Obviously, he wasn't writing in chapters then, but we've broken it down into chapters. He writes for six chapters to this church that was confused. There was sexual immorality going on. They didn't understand how to be husband and wife. They were wrestling with Jews and Gentiles, and how can we be in the same place? I mean, they had drama up the wazoo. I mean, it was constantly crazy for them. And Paul could have written for days and days and days and days and days about what they needed to do, what they needed to change. But before he did that, before he talked about those things, he spent the first two chapters telling them who they are before he told them what they need to do. He told them who they are. And I think maybe all of us in this room need to be reminded of who we actually are. So Paul writes 27 phrases and descriptions, new identities of what it means to actually be in Christ. And I think as you see this list up here, I wonder which of those new identities in Christ do you need right now? That because of a circumstance, because of an issue, because of a struggle, 
you need this. You see, God's desire from the very beginning is that you and I would live lives that reflect him and that you and I would handle all the circumstances and situations, all the pain of our lives, not on our own strength, but with our new identity. And so Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus. Is this because they were all well-behaved and good? No. It's because Christ had made them holy. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for who chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, to be blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to adoption over and over and over again. In my Bible, I've squared each of these new identities because over and over and over again, Paul is saying you have got to understand who you are if you're going to live in freedom if you're going to truly live the life that I have created you to live. And so he wrote each one of these. And for a few seconds here, I want you to get out that piece of paper and take that pencil in front of you. And I want you to write on this card, which of these new identities do you need this morning? Which of these new identities are you going to cling to? Which of these new identities can you not afford to forget? Is it chosen? Is it called? Is it made alive? Is it forgiven? Like for that thing that happened that, man, you just have never shared with anybody. You know you're forgiven in Christ. You're not that anymore. You're forgiven. That you are God's masterpiece. That some of you, some of you, every time you look in the mirror, you go, man, he messed up with me. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He created you, he loves you, and he will use your life for his glory. And so you hold on to this new identity that you're reconciled, that you're in God's family. Whatever it is for you, I want you to write it down. I want you to think about it. And my hope is every morning you wake up and every night you go to bed and you hold this card and you go, man, everything in my circumstances right now, everything at work, everything in my relationships is telling me that I am not chosen, that I have been forgotten. But that just simply is not the truth. That the truth is that I am chosen, that I am loved, that I am redeemed, that I am forgiven. And I will choose to live my life not in search of an identity that I already have, but in response to the identity that Christ has given me. And so here's what I want to do. I want to invite everyone to stand up. And on the count of three, on the count of three, here's what we're going to do. We're out loud together going to say, I am, and you're going to read whatever you have there. And you're going to talk about this with your parents. And you're going to talk about this with your coworkers, your roommates, your spouses, your friends. Who are you in Christ? So on the count of three, out loud, loud and proud, we are all going to say, I am. And then you're going to read whatever you wrote down or whatever word means the world to you. At the count of three, I am. And then read your word. One, two, three. I am chosen. I've heard better. We can do better than that. On the count of three, one last time, like this has the power to change everything about your life because it does. Because you are no longer this, but you are this. And you're gonna live like it. On the count of three, I want you to say, I am, and I want you to read that. Say that out loud. 
Like it's going to change everything. On the count of three. One, two, three. I am chosen. Now let's sing like it. <laughs>